Well, several years ago, when I was still doing college ministry, uh, one of the things that, that we used to do was take a, a winter retreat where we took a bunch of students out to Rapid City. And as part of that, we went to Terry Peak and did some skiing. So this year, that was no different. We took a bunch of students out there, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to go skiing. Why not, right? Now, at this point in my life, I'd been skiing one other time in the great state of Michigan. Now, Michigan is not known for skiing because there's not much of it. So the ski hill that I went on in Michigan was like one hill in the middle of a field, right? So really, my ski experience is almost nothing. But I decide, hey, it'll be fun. I'm out here with a bunch of students. Let's do it. So I, I get my rental equipment, and I, and I get it all put on, and the only thing I know about skiing is the pizza pie technique. Do you know the pizza pie technique? Well, if not, I'll, I'll train you one of the most crucial pieces of thing you need to know about skiing. The pizza pie technique is where you, to slow down, you turn your feet in like this, right? And it helps you come to a stop, hopefully before you hit something or someone. Now, the pizza pie technique really only works on the bunny hill. And when you're an adult my size, it doesn't even really work then, right? So I go down the bunny hill at Terry Peak a couple times, and I've got my pizza pie technique down. So I think, you know what? It's time to, to conquer the green circle, the easiest run that Terry Peak has that's right outside the lodge there, if you've ever been there. So I ride the ski lift up. I struggle getting off the ski lift, fall a couple times then, and that should have been a foreshadowing of what was to come, right? But at this point, my dignity is still sort of intact, and I think, you know what? We're going to be all right. We're going to power through this. So my strategy became go down the hill 20 or 30 feet until pizza pie was ineffective and I was going too fast and then I would fall over. That's the extent of my experience. So finally, I, I sort of get in my rhythm and I'm flying down the hill way faster than I should be because I don't know how to carve, which is really to say I don't know how to ski, right? So I'm flying down this hill and out of the corner of my eye, I see this woman who's coming across the, the, the ski run this way. And as they look, I think, our trajectories are going to align. And, and this is not going to be good. And, and this woman, she was probably like five feet tall, I'm guessing weighed like 120 pounds, fairly petite. I am not petite, right? So I know that this is going to be not good for her. So sure enough, I'm flying down the hill, and, and we're, we're going to collide. Right before I hit her, I decide I'll just barrel roll. That way I don't hit her with the full force of, of my body weight. So I bail, take her out. I mean, skis are everywhere, right? They go flying, and I uh, am, feel totally embarrassed because it's my fault. And, and of course, it happened right under the ski lift, right? So everybody on the ski lift is like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> so, and what do you say after you just took someone out on the ski slope? I don't even know. Well, then her two daughters, who I'm guessing were somewhere between the ages of, of seven and 10, they come over, and they drop to their knees, and they go, Mom! mom and they start screaming bloody murder and they think oh my god these girls think that i just killed their mom on this ski slope they they think so finally she sort of comes through and she's holding her leg going my leg my leg and i think great i broke her leg and at this point ski patrol shows up right so they're on the scene and people on the the ski lift are still like what's going on right and they're watching so ski patrol shows up they load her in a toboggan and and they look at me and they go you you need to come with us and i think what Am I in trouble? Like, this, this wasn't malicious. This was just ignorance. This was not planned. And the, the mom looks at her daughter, and she goes, did you see who hit me? I thought she knew it was me, right? So at this point, her daughter looks at me, and she goes, it was him. <laughs> now, there, there's no good way to recover at that point. Do I smile? Do I? I mean, what, there's no good thing. So I just say, are you okay? 
clearly she's not okay, right? She's being tobogganed off the mountain. So I, I go down with the ski patrol people and they take me to this little room and, and I don't know what's going to happen in there. So they sit down and they say, okay, we need your written statement of what happened and we need you to draw a picture depicting what happened. So I'm drawing stick figure people coming down a slope. Now, if, if I get sued for medical bills and this is evidence and they say, exhibit A is this stick figure drawing, you, you have no idea what's going on in my drawing, right? So I, I, I finally go through all these hoops and the woman was fine, her leg wasn't broken, I, she was fine. So they say, okay, you're free to go. So I leave and I still have all this rental equipment and it's like 11 o'clock in the morning. That was my first run of the day. The day is still young, but I, I'm done. Right? There's no way I'm going down that mountain again. So I go back to the rental return and they go, oh, do you need a different size? Did it not fit? And I said, nope, I'm cashing out. I'm done for the day. They're like, at 11 o'clock already? I said, yep, I'm done. So what I did was I went into the ski lodge and I just drank hot chocolate and, and, and I watched everybody else ski. I was done. And what I did really was I, I said, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and I'm going to watch everybody ski but I was no longer an active participant. Instead, I became a passive observer. And here, here's the spiritual reality that I want to hone in on today. I think that there's this kingdom calling, this kingdom reality that you and I are called to be invested in the call and mission of what God's doing in the world. We're called to be engaged in the call and the mission of what God's doing in the world. But the reality, the problem, is that sometimes we get content to just sit on the sidelines and be a passive observer. Just like I decided, you know what, I'm done skiing, I'm going to sit on the sidelines, I'll just watch. For some of us, in our spiritual engagement with the world and people around us, we decide that rather than being actively engaged, we're going to sit back and just sort of be passive observers. So the challenge for us today, the thing that I, I want to push us to, is to move from the sideline, being a passive observer, to being engaged on the front line of what God is doing. So the, the problem is that sometimes we're content to sit on the sidelines. The challenge for us is to move from the sideline, being a passive observer, to being on the front line, actively engaged in what God is doing. So what does it mean to be on the front line? I'm defining it this way. To be on the front line of what God is doing means to be intentionally, spiritually invested in the work that God is doing in the world around us. To be intentionally, spiritually invested in the work that God is doing in the world around us. Now, here's what I'm not saying today. This is not a message to try to guilt us into volunteering more at church, right? So, so don't hear it this way of, okay, it's one of those messages about how we need to do more and be involved in more. That's not what I'm saying. I want us to think more big picture, more holistic than that. I want us to think about in the ins and outs of every day, the spheres of influence that you interact with. How is God calling you to engage in those places? In the midst of ordinary, everyday routine of life, how is God calling you to be spiritually invested and engaged in the hearts and lives of people that you meet every day? To move from the sideline of being an observer to move at the very forefront of what God wants to do in the world. So as we push into this idea, I want to look at 1 Corinthians that we've been working our way through in the Becoming the Body series. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 26 this morning. And there it says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, 
so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden before time began and that God destined for our glory. So as we've been walking through 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about some of the issues that are present here. You'll remember from a couple weeks ago that part of the church is divided. There are some in the church that say, I follow Paul, some are following the leadership of Apollos, and still others are saying, well, I follow the leadership of Peter. So on the one hand, this church has this division that sprung up. On another hand, there's this sort of spiritual pride that Paul begins to address in the church of Corinth that has begun to weave its way into the church. And still yet again, there is sexual immorality that's begun to creep in to the Corinthian community. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to address these issues and begins to call the church at Corinth back to right living, back to doing body life in a way that God intended us to do. And so here, Paul begins to speak to them, and I think in part, he begins to address their spiritual pride a little bit. Because there were some in the Corinthian church with their emphasis on Greek wisdom and learning. Uh, Apollos, we know, was from Alexandria, one of the great centers of, of, of early learning. And it's likely that some really took to Apollos because Corinth, which is in Greece, was surrounded by Greek philosophy. And some were, were saying, you know, we have to find this knowledge and this wisdom. And, and so those who began to learn, they had this sort of uh, arrogance that began to creep up. And Paul begins to speak to them here in verse 26. And he says, wait, wait, wait. He says, remember who you were when you were called. And he says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were uh, influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. And, and what Paul begins to say is, listen, the people who were part of the Corinthian church, who were part of that community, these were not the power brokers of society. These were ordinary, everyday people, people like you and me. Now, we would expect if God is going to hatch this plan to bring hope and redemption and healing to a world that's broken, we would think, okay, surely God is going to pick the most powerful, most intelligent, the greatest people he can find, people like Alexander the Great and these great emperors, and, and that's who God would use to, to bring hope and healing, right? And Paul says, no, 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 God chose normal, everyday people, people who were not influential or wise or of noble birth, and he says, but God chose you the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. And he begins to hint at how the church was perceived by the culture around them. And, and Paul says, he chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Now, that little phrase, God chose the things that are not, it's sort of a, a Greek idiom. It's a, a colloquial way of speaking. And what Paul is saying is this. To the rest of society, those who are part of the Corinthian church, it's as if they don't even exist. The rest of the culture around them in Corinth would look right past the people who were part of the Corinthian church. These were not the power brokers of society. These are normal, everyday people. And yet Paul says, God has chosen them to be at the very forefront, engaged actively in the mission and purpose of the gospel. 
ordinary, everyday people, people like you and me, that God wants to use in a powerful way to affect change for the kingdom of God. So if that's our call, and that's the reality, God has chosen normal, everyday people, people like you and me, people like the church at Corinth, why would we stay on the sidelines? And I think there's three temptations for why we might stay on the sidelines that sort of begin to emerge in this text. And one of the first ones is, I think sometimes we're tempted to stay on the sidelines because we lose faith in the church. Now, if you've been around the church or in the church very long, you know that sometimes body life is messy. You know that sometimes there are moments of conflict, and probably a lot of us in here could tell a story of, of someone who didn't live up to your expectations as a fellow believer. You could tell a story of, of someone who said something or did something to you that wounded you. You might even have a story about a pastor who responded harshly, maybe even myself, in a way that I responded that, that, that wasn't received well. And we all have these stories, these times and places that we can point to to say, yes, church is messy. And we can be tempted to say, yeah, it's a mess. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and I'm just going to kind of watch what God's doing over there. But I don't want to be a part of that. And I'm not even going to deny that body life is messy. But you know what? I think that body life is messy is actually a really good thing. Because I think what that means is that body life, this life and community together, is really a collection of broken people who are pursuing wholeness and holiness together. And the messiness of body life, that can be iron sharpening iron, pushing one another on towards holiness in Jesus Christ. I mean, look at family life just in general. I grew up in what I think was a fairly healthy family, but I had conflict at times with my parents. I have conflicts at times with my wife. If you don't believe me, you can just ask her. She will readily tell you that sometimes we have conflict. But I don't think that conflict is, is necessarily unhealthy. I think it's the way that we walk through conflict, whether we choose to ignore it or push into it, that becomes healthy or unhealthy. I think sometimes we expect the body of Christ, we expect it to look like it will in heaven, fully redeemed, and we miss the reality that right now in this broken world, we are fellow sojourners pilgrims on the way towards wholeness and holiness in Jesus Christ, and we are not yet perfected. So the question, and I think what distinguishes the church from the rest of culture, is not that we don't have conflict, but I think for us it's in the midst of conflict that we are quick to forgive and that we are bound together by the love of Jesus Christ. That should be the differentiating factor. But sometimes when we lose faith in the church, we can be tempted to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. And sometimes as a pastor, I think, I, I wish I could pastor in the New Testament when the church just got it. They had it easier. And then I realized, if you read the New Testament, if church conflict didn't exist in the New Testament, almost two-thirds of it wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Many of Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles, they are addressing conflict and issues in the church. So body life is messy. But let's push in and be quick to be bound by the love and the forgiveness of Christ as we push and urge one another on towards holiness. I think the second temptation towards staying on the sidelines is this. Sometimes we think we can't make a difference. We think, well, well who am I? I'm, I'm, I mean, Billy Graham, he goes and he preaches to these you know, massive stadiums full of people, but what difference can I possibly make? But yet, this is what Paul says. He says, it's normal, everyday people, not of noble birth, not wise and influential. These are the very people God is using, but sometimes we sort of downplay our role. I, I don't have much to offer. The third temptation that might cause us to sit on the sidelines is this. We want to conform to culture. 
So as we begin to think about what it means to be engaged in the work and the mission of the gospel, sometimes I think it can mean something as simple as a, a coworker that you know has, has been struggling, that had a spouse or something that had surgery, just stopping to say, hey, I know you guys have this going on. How, how is that? Are you, are you guys doing okay? Or, or maybe it's a neighbor that you know is struggling that you pop over and just say, hey, I, I, I made you a pie. I just wanted to encourage you. Are you doing okay? I think it's being just spiritually and intentionally aware of and invested in what's going on around us. But sometimes what that means is that if we're going to live that way, we're, we're not going to conform to culture. We're going to begin to look different. And I think sometimes we think, you know, I, I don't want to be labeled the holy roller at work. I don't want to be that person in the neighborhood who's like, oh, it's the church guy. All I want to do is talk about faith. And so we think, you know what, I'm just going to blend in. I have enough drama just trying to do life, so I'm just going to try to do work, tread water, get through. And slowly we find ourselves on the sidelines as passive observers rather than being at the very forefront of what God would call us to. So I, I hope there's a, a couple questions that are starting to kind of roll over in our minds. One of the first questions I want us to think through is this. Will we get off the sideline and be engaged with God's purpose and mission in the world? Is that something that we even want to do? The second question that I hope that we're beginning to wrestle with is this. What does it mean and what does it look like to not be a passive observer and to begin to be actively engaged in the purpose of the gospel? What does that look like? I hope those are two questions that we're starting to wrestle with. And so as we start to flesh this out a little bit, I want to look at Mark chapter 14. And and I call this a sort of case study in, in what it is to be intentionally engaged and invested. Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. So here's Jesus. He's He's reclining at the home of a man named Simon the leper. And I don't want us to gloss over this either. Jesus is hanging out in the home of a man who was marginalized and pushed to the fringes of society by the people around him. Simon the leper means he probably had leprosy, which refers to a wide variety of skin diseases. But if that's the case, Simon would have had to walk through the market telling people that he was unclean. This is a man who had been ostracized from society, and that's exactly where Jesus chooses to spend his time and invest himself. And, and as Jesus is reclining at the table, and reclining at the table, this is, this is the language of intimate friendship in the Jewish culture. Sharing a meal together was intimate space. And in the context of this space of friendship, relational investing, into that scene comes this woman bursting onto the scene, and she has this jar of expensive perfume. And, and the way this jar was designed is the perfume was encased in it, and it had to be broken. Once it's opened, you have to use it all. And so she smashes the jar open, and she begins to pour this perfume on the feet of Jesus. 
And, and, and it's likely that this jar of perfume that she had was, was sort of a fair family heirloom that had been passed down. It probably was a sort of status symbol. It was the most expensive, most precious thing that her family owned. And she brings it and she smashes it and she pours it at the feet of this rabbi named Jesus. She isn't totally sure maybe how to be involved in the work that Jesus is doing, but she knows she has this one thing of value and she breaks it and she offers it at Jesus' feet in worship and in service to what he's doing. Now, there's two additional roadblocks to being engaged in the work of the gospel that I want to talk about here. I think the first roadblock is that sometimes in the midst of offering our gifting, our personality, our time and energy for the sake of the kingdom, that sometimes we worry about the criticism of others. And sure enough, for her, no sooner does she offer this perfume that the religious elite go, well, this is wasteful. That's worth a year's wages. You could have given that to the poor. And right away, they begin to criticize her offering before Jesus. And I think sometimes we have a similar idea when we think, well, what what can I really offer to Jesus? I mean, I I don't teach a Sunday school class like this person. I'm I'm not good with my words to do that. I I can't play a musical instrument like this person. I I don't have the gift of encouragement like that person. I'm not good with my hands for construction projects like that person that serves. And and out of that, we think, well, what if I try and and it's not good enough and people make comments? And and I think out of that, this, this sort of second roadblock begins to emerge, which is an insecurity about what we have to offer the kingdom. We think, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I don't feel that gifted. I don't feel that, like I can do anything. And so we, we're content to sit on the sidelines because we think, what, I mean, what difference can I make? What do, what do I even have to offer for the cause of Christ for the sake of the gospel? So here's this question. How do we begin to move towards being missionally engaged with those temptations and these roadblocks to being engaged in mind? How do, how do we begin to move in that direction? So the first thing I want to talk about as we begin to think about what it is to move towards being missionally engaged is this. In Mark chapter 14, verse 8, I think there's this profound five-letter, five-word sentence. It's this. Mark chapter 14, verse 8. She did what she could. She did what she could. This woman didn't have a whole lot to offer, but she had this expensive jar of perfume, and she knew that she could offer that at Jesus' feet in a sign of surrender and in an act of worship, and she did what she could. And so the haunting question that begins to raise up for me is, if she did what she could, what can I do? What is it that I'm capable of offering that even though I don't feel like it matters too much, what if I offer my time, my talents, and my ability, as meek and humble as I think it is, what if I offered that to Jesus? She did what she could. What is it that, that I can do? And, and here's the, listen to this out of 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4.10 says this. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others in faithful stewardship as stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Let me go back to verse 10. He says, use whatever gifts you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Have you ever thought about the reality that in the unique way that God has designed and created and gifted you, that you have a unique role to play in the kingdom of God that no one else can play? 
I think what Peter says there is incredibly profound. He says, when you engage your gifting for the cause of Christ, whatever, he says, whatever gift, when you engage, whatever you can do, when you bring that gift and offer it in service before Jesus and you begin to engage with the lives of other people, catch this, he, he says, you become an administrator, a giver of God's grace. Just as a doctor might administer medicine or a nurse might administer salve on, on someone who's, who's injured, when we bring our gifting to the table, we administer God's grace in all of its forms and the gifting that God has given us in the life of another person. Here's, by the way, why I think this matters, that we are engaged. Sometimes we think, you know what, I can sit on the sideline as a passive observer, and that's my choice. I can choose to do that, and it doesn't affect anyone else. But I think in light of 1 Peter 4.10, that whatever gifting you have, you become a steward of God's grace as you engage that. When we choose to sit on the sidelines, we rob the body of Christ, and we rob the world at large of a unique way of encountering the grace of God in and through our gifting. We cannot individually choose to say, I will disengage and just become an observer. No, we have to be actively engaged because God has uniquely gifted you, designed and created you to administer his grace in the lives of the people that you interact with every day. And that that five-word sentence haunts me. She did what she could. So think about what sphere of influence do you have in your life right now that you could begin to say, how can I begin to impact this place? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. You have this phenomenal sphere of influence that God has blessed you with to administer grace in the lives of your children and in your family. Maybe you're someone who you say, you know what, I I work on a manufacturing floor and, and I do the same task every day. I don't really have time to interact and have spiritual conversations. But what would it look like is, is as you're on the manufacturing floor, if you just begin to pray for your coworkers quietly by name, what kind of spiritual awakening might happen in that environment? What is the sphere of influence that God has given you? And, and where, that question, what can you do? How might you uniquely engage that environment with the gifting that God has given you? Secondly, as we begin to move towards missional engagement, I think we have to, we have to worry more about being faithful than about being fruitful. Worry more about being faithful than about being fruitful. And sometimes, again, we think, you know what, I'm not going to have this ministry like Billy Graham where hundreds of thousands come to know Jesus, and, and I don't know if this even matters. But I think what matters is, is faithfully showing up and being willing to be engaged spiritually in the lives of other people around you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. In verse 5, he says, what, what is Apollos and what is Paul? We are only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, only God who makes things grow. And so what what Paul says there is he says, listen, I had this role to play. I came and I brought you the gospel and, and I planted this little seed but Apollos came in and, and Apollos watered and nurtured that seed that I had planted. But he says, neither Paul or Apollos, we didn't make that grow. It's only God who caused it to bear fruit. And in the midst of asking this question, what does it mean to not be an observer, but to be actively engaged with my gifting and personality in the spiritual investment in the lives of other people? It's to say, consistently, faithfully show up, be there and be invested in the people around us. Worry about being faithful to what God has called you to and trust that God will bear fruit in due season. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is 
for some of you, maybe there's a family member that you have been praying a long time that they would come to know Jesus. And maybe at moments you are so frustrated that you don't see anything happening. But if, if that's you, can I just encourage you, continue to be faithful in that and trust that the seed that you are planting, that in due time, that God in his sovereignty can, can cause those seeds to bear fruit. What's your role to faithfully play, to faithfully step into that God has called you to? And can you trust that if you're faithful, that it's God's responsibility to bring the fruit? The third thing as we think about what it is to step towards being missionally engaged is this. Trust that the Spirit empowers. As God calls us to be involved and invested in the lives of people around us, sometimes we think, you know, I, man, I, I jumble my words and I'm not good about talking about my faith or the gospel. And, and, and what if I talk to this person and I just bumble it up and they are more confused than ever? And you go, I, I just, I don't feel very capable. Well, what I love about 1 Corinthians is, is Paul says this. He says, I came to you, the Corinthians, with weakness and with great fear and trembling. I always imagined Paul as someone who was confident, and he showed up on the scene and was like, hey, Corinth, we're going to do this. That, that wasn't Paul. He says, I came on the scene with great fear and with trembling, and uh, you can sense a little bit of his hesitancy. But he says his preaching, he says, my preaching wasn't even with wise and persuasive words. Nobody in Corinth looked at Paul's preaching and goes, wow, this guy's good. No, Paul says, everything that I did was actually a display of the Spirit's power. And can you trust that God, as God calls you to faithfully invest your life in people around you, that there's going to be times when he calls you to something where you say, I, I don't know if I'm ready to do this, but can you trust that the Spirit will empower you as God calls you? Here, here's the other thing I want to mention with this, is that when God calls us, our capability and our capacity are never equal to our calling. I heard a pastor by the name of Wayne Cordero say that one time, and I thought that was profound. Our capability and our capacity are never equal to our calling. And so God will call us to something, and you'll say, my capability stops here, but I feel like what God has called me to is out there, and there's this gap between what I'm capable of and what you've called me to, and I don't know how to overcome that gap. The only way to overcome that gap is in the empowering of the Spirit and in the grace that God brings as we show up and are faithful. Can you trust that the Spirit will empower you? And you know what? You might have a conversation with somebody where you bumble through what you believe, and you go, you know what? That wasn't even coherent. But in the life of that person, the Spirit will cause that conversation to bear fruit, and they will walk away with something profoundly different in their life. Because the Spirit took your faithful offering, planted that seed, and brought it to fruition in the life of that person. Finally, I think... Uh, as we think about what it is to move towards missional engagement is this, is to hold to our identity as believers. Hold to our identity as believers. And really what I'm saying is, one of our temptations was we want to conform to society. Here what I'm really telling us is, let's not conform to society. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. He says, they're coming to nothing. He says, no, we declare God's wisdom. And Paul begins to say, listen, the way that the world exists and the way that the leaders of this world use power and the message that they bring, that is not how we're called to live. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about Philippians chapter 2 as a demonstration of God's wisdom. And Philippians 2 says that our attitude, your attitude, my attitude, should be in the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but it says he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. He came to this earth to serve us. He was humble. He was self-denying. 
And Paul says that is the wisdom of the message of the gospel. Will we deny ourselves? Will we live to serve and invest our lives in other people around us? He says that's the wisdom and the message that we are preaching. So church, let us not conform to the message of wisdom of the world around us, but may we hold faithfully and truthfully to the message of hope that God gives in the gospel. We tracking? How we doing? I feel like we've been cruising this morning. It's a lot, isn't it? So, all right, let me end with this. So what do we do? If you're saying, okay, I, I think I follow where you're going, and, and I think, okay, I get we're not supposed to be in the sideline. We're supposed to be at the forefront of what God's doing, but, but what do I do now? So let me give four what I think are practical, tangible things. One of the first things that I would challenge us to do is, is to spend some time praying and reflecting. And, and reflect on a couple things. Who has God created you to be? How has God gifted you? Reflect on what sphere of influence do you have in your life right now that maybe you've overlooked? And as you reflect and pray about this and say, God, help me understand the ways that you've gifted me and how I could bring that and offer it in service to you. Help me not to overlook the spheres of influence that are right in front of me. And secondly, as as you reflect on those things, request the Spirit's power. Say, okay, Spirit, would you give me boldness and courage to have the conversations that I think that you're calling me to? Give me guidance and direction and discernment and insight into the, these interactions that I have with people. Thirdly, I think we just need to re-engage. If you've been on the sideline and you've been kind of a passive observer and you feel the Spirit nudging you this morning saying, hey, be intentional with those people that you wor- work with and, and encounter every day to, to just spiritually invest in their life. Sometimes all we need to do is, is just take the step of obedience that we know we're being called to. And, and finally, in the middle of this, we need to be okay relinquishing recognition. Paul tells us that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. He says it was with a display of the Spirit's power. Why? He says, so that the faith of the Corinthian church would not rest on him, but on God. See, our our intention is not to invest in the lives of people to say, look how holy I am. No, our our, our call to faithfully invest in the lives of others is to invest in their life and and to point them to Jesus. And in that, it means relinquishing recognition to faithfully show up Point people to Jesus and trust that the Spirit will bring fruit. The band is going to lead us in a response song, and it's called The Church. And one of the lines in this song is, uh, we carry hope to hopeless eyes. And, And that's why I think this matters, because I think and believe that the church is the hope of the world. We talk about the church as the body of Christ. Can I tell us, church, that's not some abstract metaphor. That's a tangible, concrete reality that when we see the brokenness of the world around us, sometimes we say, God, what are you going to do about this? But here's the reality. We are the body of Christ. We are the physical manifestation of Christ in this world, empowered by his spirit. In in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, those are plural. He says, y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that as we are gathered as the body of Christ, this is the place where the Spirit dwells. And we are called to carry hope to people who are hopeless. And church, this matters because if we don't do it, no one will. Let us not abandon our call. But may we carry hope to people who are hopeless, who desperately need the gospel and the body of Christ is right here and we are a sent people. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And uh, God, I thank you for the example of Paul in the church at Corinth that he was terrified, but he showed up. 
He was faithful, even though he, he says he was trembling with fear, but your spirit met him there and empowered him for the work in the ministry that you called him to. So God, I pray that we would leave today feeling a new challenge to be invested and engaged intentionally in the lives of people around us to bring spiritual truth and your grace to bear in those places. God, may we faithfully give ourselves to your mission. And God, in those places where we don't feel qualified or capable, may we trust your spirit. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.